This is the word of God. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's the word of God to us. Thanks, Glenn. Let me hold that too? Okay. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Nigel Hunter, and I'm filling in for Scott today. Um, We're going to be in... Genesis 46 and 47, so there should be a Bible right in front of you underneath one of those chairs if you didn't bring one with you. And if you've been with us, then you know that we are working our way through the life of Joseph, and we have, we've been taking a kind of a, an over-the-top approach, uh, meaning that we're, what we're looking at here in this is is we're not drilling down into all the details of this story of Joseph and Genesis, but rather we're looking at the way that God has orchestrated Joseph's life in order to provide an environment and a framework for him to be able to display his glory in different ways. And so last week, if you were here, Pastor Scott talked about reconciliation. This week, we're going to look at family, and those two, if you've been a part of a family, know they go hand in hand. (laughs) So... Last week, I'd really encourage you to go listen to uh, his sermon last week, but one of the things that I want to pull out of that that's going to be really important for us today is that Pastor Scott made a distinction between forgiveness as a command of God expressing itself in reconciliation and restoration, which is then the putting back together of relationships. So what he said, and what I think we need to hear when we're talking about this, is when someone sins against us, and we just read out of 1 John, the the command is that we would not sin. The command is that we would recognize God forgives us fully for our sins. And then Jesus says to his disciples, um, when he's teaching them the Lord's Prayer, forgive uh, forgive them their trespasses as you forgive those who trespass against us. And And he goes on afterwards to explain that forgiveness is not an option for the Christian. So if someone wrongs you, if someone sins against you, you do not get to not forgive them. Because as you withhold forgiveness from someone else, not only do you hurt yourself in that you hold on to those those roots of bitterness and allow the devil a foothold to tempt you to believe that God does not heal, but you're also preventing yourself from receiving from God and extending his character and his nature, which is what we are created and designed to do, to be God's representative in this world. 
And so because God forgives us fully and completely, we are commanded to forgive fully and completely. But forgiveness does not then mean that we go back to relationship the way that it was before. In fact, uh, Pastor Scott made a big deal about the fact we cannot go back to relationship as it was before. We are people. We are different. On the other side of a hurt, you are not the same person that you were before. And so that reconciliation and that, that bringing back into relationship is a second part of the piece that carries with it all sorts of practical challenges. And sometimes it's just practically wise not to, recon- not to restore relationship. Be unwise and unhealthy for people to be back in relationship again. And so when we're talking about forgiveness and we're talking about restoration and reconciliation, what we really want to communicate is the character of God and his nature is full, complete, good, and holy. And he gives us the opportunity to participate in that by the work of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we can do these things, but we're not required to. And we had a beautiful testimony last week um, of the fact that our sin can be brought to us decades later. And the pain is still real. And the hurt is still there. And there's still opportunities to receive and forgive. And I say all this to set this up because what we're looking at today is a very similar issue. We are looking at the reunification of Joseph and his family. Last week we saw Joseph putting his brothers through the test. And what I've really appreciated about Pastor Scott's exposition of this life of Joseph is that it's filled with grace. Um, most of us, if we've studied the Bible and we look at Joseph, we see that his life is, we see these tests and we see these things as Joseph doing what our legalistic hearts would like to do, right? When someone hurts us, when someone wrongs us, we want to ring them through the fire and we want to make sure that, that, that they never do anything like that again, that we can trust them. And so we test them. We test people. We ask them to do things um, in order to prove to us that they will not hurt us again. And that's often how this story is, that's how I often read this story of Joseph is, is Joseph is, is doing the wise and the shrewd um, moves of, of, resto- of recon- uh, reconciling and restoring his relationships by proving to himself and to his brothers that they're not going to do this again. But that's not what it is. That's not the way that, that God has challenged my heart through this, through this sermon series. It's, rather, it's Joseph's full and complete trust in God himself allows him to give his brothers opportunities to shine. Allows God's glory to be put on display through this relationship between these families. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the family on display. And when we talk about family, we're going to be talking about it in a couple of, on a couple of different levels. So go ahead and let your mind run to wherever you want it to run when we're talking about family. If you're talking about your nuclear physical family... You have a father and a mother. You have maybe a brother or a sister or several of them. Uh, Maybe you have sons or daughters, aunts and uncles. That physical family there is absolutely what we are talking about. We're talking about broken relationships and restored relationships between real people that really live, that really have experiences together. And I don't know all your stories, so I don't know what that means for you. I don't know when I say family, if you get really excited because Christmas and Thanksgiving are coming and you can't wait to get everybody together again. I mean, I don't know if you don't have a family like that where Christmas and Thanksgiving are coming and you are committed once again to not being a part of that. Or you know that someone in your family is committed to not being a part of that. And so at your tables, there will be an empty chair because someone does not want to be there. Or because 
of the nature of sin in this world, someone has been taken away from you um, physically and they cannot be there. And I don't know the circumstances surrounding that. If it's tragic, if it, if it continues to, to cause your heart to be angry, if, you, if it causes you to be guilty saying, I should have done more, or I wish I would have done more. I don't know what your relationship is with your family, but I want you to hear that in that relationship, there is freedom. Forgiveness is required. Restoration is a privilege. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But there is freedom in Christ for you to pursue your relationships however God is calling you to do that. So not only do we have that physical family, but we also have our national or cultural family. And when I say that, I'm talking more, I mean, we'd be silly to ignore um, the, the rifts that exist in our American family today. Coming up here in, on November, we have one more opportunity to see that there are people who want to yell loudly and clearly how much they despise and loathe other people simply because they think something different or won't agree to something that they, they find valuable. And it's heartbreaking to see that we now have a medium where people are able to express themselves in ways that don't demand accountability. That in, in private, by ourselves, we're able to say and declare things that no one's going to challenge, and then we can put it out there for the whole world to see. And then we can feel brave and strong because no one's going to talk back to us, and we can respond in ways that are equally aggressive and equally angry. And even as we say we can forgive someone, we can still communicate that we have no desire ever to reconcile with them. And now when I say that reconciliation is an option, I only mean that it's an option in the sense that coming to church on a Sunday is an option. Okay? You're not saved by faith alone and Sunday attendance. But if you don't attend regularly with a church body on a Sunday morning, are you really part of the family of Christ? Is that really a desire or value of yours? So as a Christian, we would desire reconciliation. We would desire for uh, restoration. We would desire families and, uh, and relationships to be put back together. But sometimes we can't. And sometimes we choose not to. And sometimes we choose to push people away by the words we say and the things we do. And as Americans, I think sometimes people would like us to believe that we're much more divided than we really are. Because absent uh, the buffer of social media, absent the, the buffer of anonymity, sitting down across from someone and looking at someone in the face, people are much more reasonable, much more amenable, and much more kind than we would otherwise appear to be. So not only do we have a physical family, not only do we have a cultural family, but we also have a church family, a spiritual family. And this is probably the place, I mean, I don't know, I don't know whether, you know, being American or being a Christian is more divisive. <laughs> because right now, we look at people and we say, yes, you, you must believe in, in grace alone, by faith alone, and social justice alone. That we are saved by faith alone, grace alone, and Trump alone. That we are saved by grace alone, faith alone, and XYZ alone. And one of the one of the things that always gets me, uh, we're coming up on Reformation Day towards the end of this month, and I love Reformation Day for the fact that we have in front of us now, and we have done away with the lie that we don't have access to God directly. We have the words of God for ourselves that we can read by ourselves. And that's important when you are living in a country that is dominated by a religion that would like to wipe you out. When you live in a place where 
being a Christian and having a Bible is dangerous to your life and the lives of your families. But in a place like America, where we have cultural, religious freedom, the Reformation carries with it some, I'll say, unintended consequences. And when we talk about reconciliation and being together, we are divided here on Sunday mornings. We are segregated by color, we're segregated by culture, we're segregated by language, we're segregated by history, we're segregated by theology on Sunday mornings. Some people are very proud of that, and some people just recognize that's just the nature of, of the way things are. But we had, uh, last night there was a really special woman who had the courage to come into Wenatchee to talk about her life um, as a member of Planned Parenthood and share what it was like for her on the inside and reveal some things that that organization would not like the public to know. And unfortunately, there were protesters and counter-protesters, and there were arguments, and there was division, and there was strife, and it wasn't just between people that love Jesus and people that don't love Jesus, people that hate abortion and people that justify abortion, but it was also between churches saying, this is the way that you should do things, this is the way you should not do things. Otherwise, God-fearing, otherwise, God-loving, otherwise, kind people who when this one thing gets set in front of them decide that it's faith alone grace alone and this alone and so as we as we look at this and we're and we're looking at 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 this life of Joseph what I want us to see in this is what it looks like when God intervenes in the life of of a family that is so broken and offers Forgiveness and offers grace so fully, and it's received. Not so that we will look at it and feel bad about ourselves, not so that we will look at it and say that Joseph is a hero of this story, but rather so that we will look at it and we will know that it is possible. That this is one more testimony, like we shared here today, the God stories. What is God doing? What has God done? And that's what this is today. This is one more God story about what God, what God is doing and what he has done. And so we're going to start today. This is going to be a little different than the way we usually do things. We're not going to be entirely sequential, so you're going to need to hang on to your Bible and, and stick with me. But we're going to start in Genesis chapter 46, and we're going to take a look at one of the most important pieces of a family, and that is headship. Okay? When God created the world, he created it in such a way that it would, be an ex- it, would, it would be an environment where he would exercise authority and a dominion over all things. And there were angels that were there celebrating this. And one of those angels was so jealous and so frustrated and so angry with the fact that he was not getting credit for the things that he was doing that he rebelled against God. And in his pride, he thought he should get the attention that God deserved. And God cast him out, changed his name from Lucifer the Beautiful to Satan the Adversary. And all this happened before God created Adam and Eve And God created them, and he put them in the garden. And so when man was placed in this garden, God gave them a command. He gave them an authority that he gave them a job to do. And he said, you are going to be in relationship with each other, and you are going to rule over this whole world. You're going to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And by doing that, you're going to express my character, my nature to this world. You're going to care for it. You're going to let the world know that I love you, that I love you and that you love me. And then Adam and Eve, in their pride, um, Adam chose not to do his job of leading well, and Eve chose not to do her job of submitting to Adam, and she was deceived. Adam entered into sin willingly. The devil tricked them, and everything was broken. And so now we have this 
frustration with authority. We have this frustration with headship where both Adam and Eve are not pleased with the roles that they get to play, and it continues on to us today. And so when we talk about headship, we talk about authority, we talk about submission, what I want you to know is that God has structured the world in such a way that we would know that he is the king and the Lord of all things. And he has given us authorities in this world and allowed them to be over us so that we would know that he is here. Not because these authorities are good, smart, wise, or even the best at what it is that they do, but because God is king of the world. And if we can't trust here at this level, we're not going to trust up here at this level. And I might have lost you on that, but I would, I, would, I would ask you to consider the life of Christ, that Jesus went to the temple uh, weekly for the Sabbath, as was his custom. This, the, you remember the, the temple leaders, right? They were not fans of Jesus. And he continued to put himself under the authority of the law that he was superior to. He continued to put himself under the authority of the Jewish culture. And in fact, he did not call for a revolt or a revolution against the Romans. He didn't say, we're going to rebel against this false church, these, these, these wicked teachers. He also didn't say, we're going to rebel against this oppressive government. He said, I've come to give them life and life abundant. And this is what it looks like. And so when we talk about headship and authority, it's important that we recognize that it is there. And let's take a look at what it means. Beginning in, ch- in uh, chapter 46, verse 1. It says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, I am God the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So the first thing we see when we're talking about families that model headship is we see that those leaders are not always good. Uh, You might not have caught that right away, and and I didn't either until I had a conversation with Pastor Scott, but what we see in this is the name. What does God call him? Jacob. Jacob. The Bible says that Israel went down and God calls him Jacob. What's the difference between the name Jacob and the name Israel? Well, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Jacob was the name that he was given when he was born. Jacob means deceiver. Jacob was the one that lied. He got everything that he wanted in his life by lying, by conniving. By figuring out ways to get over on his brother, by figuring out ways to trick people, by figuring out ways to get ahead of the game on his own merit because other people weren't as smart as he was. And so when God is looking at him and he is calling him Jacob, not Israel, he's making a declaration. He's saying, I know you. I know you fully and I know you completely. Because he's already changed his name, right? But he calls him here Jacob. And what does he say? He says, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid. He's renewing his covenant with Jacob the deceiver. So the first thing we see in these families that have headship, these fathers that are, that are in the front, that these fathers, they fail. Your relationship with your dad may be a good one. It may be a bad one. Your relationship with your uh, with your boss, maybe a good one, maybe a bad one, with whoever's in authority over you, may have been a good one, may have been a bad one. But the reality is at some point, and we know this, those of you have, that have been in a position of leadership in any way, shape, or form, know that you will fail. 
And a lot of times, a lot of things we're doing is we're just trying to move fast enough so people don't recognize that we don't know what we're doing. And what God is saying here is that I know you. You can't move fast enough to get away from the fact that I know everything about you. But even in that, God reiterates his promise with this deceiver. He also says, Jacob, you're going to go down and you're going to come back up again and your son is going to close your eyes. What does that mean? It means that he's going to die in Egypt and he's not going to come back out. Even though God just said he's going to come back out. So God is reiterating again this covenantal promise and he's also giving us a foreshadow of the Exodus. He is promising to Jacob that that Israel will go down into Egypt and Israel will come out again. And this whole life of Joseph's story, we've been talking about these visions that he was given at the start. And that the, how that vision sustained him going all the way through. Well, God is giving Israel the same vision right here. He is saying to his people, you're going to go down and you will come back up again. Flip forward a little bit to, to uh, verse 28. Still in, in chapter 46. We see this father who has failed and a covenant that's reiterated with him. And then we see this reunification piece. We see that he had sent Judah ahead of him. This is, uh, we're talking about Jacob, Israel. Had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went down to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. And what we see here, this father who was a failure gets to see his son for the first time in decades and they revert back, like Glenn said, to those relationships where this Joseph, this son, becomes his father's son again. And this father who lost his beloved son gets to be his father again. And they wept, on, he wept on his neck for a good long time. I love that, that phrase. It's just, I mean, you can picture that, right? You can hear just that sobbing, that, that joy, that I just want to hold you and I never want to let you go. And when they say a good long time, I'm thinking that was a good long time. And as they were crying and as they were hugging, they probably, you know, probably went down into a seated and they're probably just, I mean, just as sitting with just, just being close together, smelling each other, feeling each other, knowing that they're alive. After all these years, God has been faithful and God has provided. But I wonder what it was like on the walk up there. I wonder what it was like for Joseph to come down, wondering if my father would recognize me, wondering how he would respond when he saw his dad again. I wonder what it was like for for Israel walking up there, knowing that his favoritism created this environment where these brothers hated this son so much. And led to all this other chaos and sin that was in his life. If he would even recognize his son again. Remember, his son is an Egyptian. Shaved and clean. He's also the number two in all of the world. I mean, if you're the dad of the vice president of the United States, there's some decorum that goes along with that. There's some some proper procedures. Because any weakness expressed could be a, a foothold. And so you have these two men coming up to each other after not having seen each other for decades, and they revert right back into their relationship. And so not only do these fathers fail, but fathers are always fathers. So you might not have done the best job as a dad 
or your dad might not have done the best job with you, but he's still your dad or you're still a father. You might not be the best person in authority. You might not always get it right, but God has created headship, not so that headship would always be right, but rather so that we would always learn to trust that there is a God who is good. When we get it right, praise God, he has filled us with his Holy Spirit, and we have done the good thing. And when we get it wrong, praise God, he has given us his son, Jesus Christ, to cover all of our sins. But that never changes the fact, the nature, the reality that this headship, this authority exists, and that it is there. And there's no two ways about it. So it doesn't matter as you're heading down the hill there past Lakeside, if you think that the speed limit's going to be 50 and you, could, you should be going there when you get there. That line right there is where the speed limit changes. So whether you want it to be 50, whether you want it to be 35, whether you want it to be 75, okay, it is what it is. And it doesn't matter what anybody else does, and it doesn't matter what you think. God has structured the world in such a way that all the laws and all the natural commands and everything that's here is the way that it is. And you can't undo that, no matter how hard you try. And this, is, this is tough, because I have almost no relationship with my dad. And I don't know how to put that back together in a way that makes sense for us. And I think about it quite often, especially as I'm looking at a passage like this. And I wonder, what does that mean? How do I respect this guy? How, how do I communicate to him that he's valued in a way that allows him to receive the blessing of God? I'm just telling, I'm just telling you, I don't know. So... I hope that as you're hearing this, if you're, if you're feeling challenged and you're saying, that doesn't, you don't know my story, you don't know what's going on, I don't. But God does. And what he lays out for us is, is the explanation of how things are. And then we get to respond to it. The last little vignette I want to look at here as we're talking about families and headship. After we see fathers fail, but fathers continuing to father, we go down to chapter 47, all the way down into verse 7. We see that fathers continue to lead. Now, Israel had sent Judah ahead of him, and that's amazing when you think about the role and the relationship that Judah played in sending Joseph off to, off to Egypt. But Jacob took that, and he said, I'm, son, go show me the way to my son. Bring him back to me. And then again in verse 47, Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. Think about that. This shepherd from out in the middle of nowhere gets to stand before the king of the world. Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days and the years of the lives of my fathers and the days of those sojournings. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his fathers and brothers and gave them possession of the land of Egypt. Jacob goes into and stands in the throne room in the presence of the king of the world. And with a chutzpah that only comes from God himself, he blesses Pharaoh. Here, see what happens here. This father who has not done much right in terms of leading, not done much right in terms of building unity, not done much right in terms of securing and, and, uh, 
and uh, preserving the promise of God that was given to his father and his father before him stands with a confidence that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and blesses the king of the world. This pagan king, only because his son is there. And this is going to be something we're going to come back to in a minute. But this role of Joseph allows Jacob to be the father, the head, the leader, the king that Israel and the world will need. And so as Israel comes in, he is physically playing out part of the promise that God gave to him because he is being a blessing to the whole world. Do you remember the the promise that he gave to Abraham? Through your descendants will multiply like the stars of the sky. You will not be able to count them, and they will be a blessing to the whole world. And so Israel comes in to the king of the whole world and gives him a blessing. Not just a thank you for taking care of my son, but a, a blessing that, that carries with it the weight of the God of the universe. Showing, demonstrating once again that Pharaoh was God's tool. That the Lord used to glorify himself in all these different ways. And so Jacob comes in as the head of this family and displays an authority that's even greater than the authority that Joseph had with Pharaoh. Because Joseph is Pharaoh's number two. He does not have authority over Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has made that very clear. So Joseph has no blessing that he can give other than just serving. But Jacob comes in, and he stands in authority over Pharaoh as a spiritual authority, giving Pharaoh permission, giving Pharaoh well wishes, giving Pharaoh authority in the world that comes from God himself. And so as we look at this and we see this father here, what we want to understand is that this headship that we have that God has set in this world is the headship that leads families in such a way that the world looks on it and sees. And he doesn't always get it right, and I hope that that's encouraging to you, because it, doesn't, because it does not negate the pain that you've experienced in your family life. Even if you come from a good family, even if you come from a good home, even if you come from a home where you were raised to love Jesus and your parents are still married, still faithfully together or were for their entire life, or you are still married, still faithful, you continue to be something that the world continues to move away from. And so we continue to have an opportunity to model for the world what it means to love our children, to love each other, and to care in a way that is becoming just wildly foreign. We're seeing the age of marriage be pushed back later and later. We're seeing the frequencies of marriage increasing and increasing. We're seeing the absence of fathers growing and growing. We're seeing these orphaned men and orphaned women coming to age and having no idea what it is that they are supposed to do. And one of the coolest things that I've had an opportunity to see being back in the schools is relationships between men and these boys that have no fathers. And there's one kid that we're working with, and I'm still on the outside watching this guy. But I'm watching this young man who's just come of adult age try to navigate the criminal justice environment without a father. And I'm watching this staff member at the school who has stepped up and taken that role. And I've watched the difference that has made in this child, who's a man, but is still a child in here because he never had a father teach him how to grow up. And talking with some friends in the military, they're explaining when these boys show up to boot camp, when these girls show up to boot camp, they're learning how to be adults for the first time. 
They're learning how to shave. They're learning how to bathe regularly. They're learning how to make their bed. They're learning how to put their things away. They're learning how to brush their teeth. They're learning how to eat properly. They're learning how to balance their budget. They're learning how to be wise with their finances. They're learning how to take, a, um, take, take a responsibility for their actions, takes initiative, how to create, how to generate. Because they never had someone lay that out for them and they spent their entire lives trying to navigate a world that they, they, they couldn't understand. Because a single mom was too busy working and too exhausted just trying to make ends meet to spend time passing on that knowledge of what it takes to make it in the world. And these oral traditions, the the time that we get to sit down and communicate with each other, the time we get to pass on, hey, here's how I really messed up, here's how I was really successful, is something that I think we've lost in this day and age. Not just because we're so busy, but also because we continue to move towards quick modes of communication, more efficient methods to get from point A to point B. We lose the opportunity to slow down and be in relationship with each other. And when we don't do that, we don't necessarily know, we don't necessarily remember how we ended up being where we're at. And this is a good segue into the second point, is that families need healing. And if you turn back into chapter 46 with me and you look in verse 8, excuse me, verse 5, we see this genealogy, and I love genealogies. I know a lot of people don't, and i got to be careful how I say I love them. I don't like them because <laughs> they're long and they're tedious, and I don't know anybody in there. But I love them because they're long and they're, they're thorough, and there's specific names in there. So remember who this, this story is written to, this book of Genesis. By Moses to who? The Israelites. And where are they? They're in the wilderness, in the Exodus. They've just been brought out of Egypt. They've just been brought out of 400 years of slavery. So their great, great, great something and other grandfathers were the ones that went down into Egypt. And they have not known anyone who has known anything other than what it means to be a slave under the house of an oppressive pharaoh. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine what it would be like to be told every day that you're going to worship a God who lets you get up and work for someone who's not going to compensate you, who lets you get up and watch people you care about be beaten, who is going to let you have your children taken away from you, a God who is not going to answer your call for help, a God who is not going to make your life easier. But you're told continually and regularly that this is your God and that you will love him. And someday he will come. Someday he will save I don't, know, I don't know how many decades it would take for me to forget that promise and to think maybe I've, not been, I've been sold a bill of goods. Add on to that a generation after a generation after a generation, and you have no place in this world. You've been fighting your entire life just trying to get by, and just by the miraculous grace of Jesus Christ, or excuse me, of God the Father, you have been pulled out of slavery. You have seen the hand of God as he has decimated one by one every pillar of society, every fabric of economics inside Egypt, and he has torn it apart, and he has brought you out. But do you still belong? Because now you're just one of one to two million people. How do you know that you are special? Well, you know you're special because your dad's name is Jeff, and his dad's name is is Robert, and his dad's name is, 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 and you get to verse 8, and his dad's name is Reuben. 
And all of a sudden, you have now been anchored into the story of God. And now you belong. And so let's look at this real quick. Starting in verse 5, Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock, their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him. His sons, his son's sons with him, his daughters, his son's daughters, all his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. Was that pretty comprehensive? We figure out that everybody came and took everything they had? And then in verse 8, now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons. Jacob, we already know, the deceiver. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben. Do you remember Reuben and Simeon? In their anger at what had been done to their sister, went and mutilated a whole village. Didn't say that in here. You wouldn't know that unless you knew the story, right? Reuben. Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, were Hanak, Palu, Hesron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Reuben's buddy there, brother, Jemuel, Yemen, Ohad, Yakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. That means something. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, we remember Judah, and his kids Ur and Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Oh, that sounds sad. I feel, I feel bad for them, don't you? <laughs> That's because you know the story, right? And the sons of Perez were Hesron and Hamuel. The sons of Issachar, ooh, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulon, Sarad, Elon, and Yahalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she born to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with the daughter of Dinah. Altogether, his sons and daughters, number 33. Oh, Leah, she's listed first. She must have been his favorite, right? Mm-hmm. And Dinah, oh, she's, she's noted in here. She's probably a pretty special girl. Probably had a nice, easy life. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. Hey, just so you know, if you guys ever have to read these, you just read them quickly, and people assume that you know how to pronounce them. <laughs> the sons of Asher were Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah were Heber and Malchiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. Wait a minute. That's another woman? The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Anasaph, the daughter of Potiphar, the wife of On, bore to him. Also, they're from a royal family. That must have been good for them. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupin, and Hupim, and Ard. <laughs> These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons of all. The son of Dan was Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jasiel. Guni, Yezer, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Jacob, Rachel, his daughter, and whom she bore to Jacob, 17, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including Jacob's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born with him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. If you like numbers, I'm sure there's significance between, behind the six and the six. And I'm sure there's a significance in the number of the 70 and what it took to move to completion. Um, so have fun looking that down. But what I wanted you to see as we read through that is that we just read a list of names and there was a little bit of commentary in there. And that's pretty cool that all these people came down there. So now you can be anchored in that. What we didn't see in there and what Pastor Scott was really intentional about in the sermon series was we did not see the sin that caused some of those names to be notable. 
Because when God restores families together, when he heals, he heals fully and completely. And you get included in that when you have been forgiven and your sin is cast as far away, right, from the east as the east is from the west. And this is one of the big challenges of families when, when we heal. Is that not only are we healed, now we, we're almost forced into that reconciliation piece. You know, if it's a coworker, if it's a, if it's a, a friend, if it's a, you know, if it's anybody other than family, reconciliation is really an option. But when it comes to family, that reconciliation piece is thrown right in your face and it becomes very, very difficult. And there really is no way for them to stay together if there's not something holding them together. And so what we see in here is we see a list of people, a list of people who by blood are a part of the family, a list of people who by marriage are part of the family, and a list of people who are mentioned, not specifically by name, but that are brought in, those slaves and those, the workers that were with him. And all of those people are blessed because of the headship, the authority of Jacob. This is a pretty amazing thing, because Jacob could have just said, you know what, you, some of you guys can stay behind. We can't afford all of this. I mean, there's been famine in the land for several years, and there's been challenges here. And Jacob could have just started kind of you know, we'll eat the youngest first kind of thing. I mean, it, I don't know how they, how they necessarily wanted to survive, but, but when you're looking at this story and you see these people and you see these names, it means that there are people that were there, people that are cared about, people that are known. There's sin in these stories, though, that only the family knows. And the world, as, the, as these guys come walking in, we already saw that Joseph is up there watching and waiting for them to come down. The world is going to see this family come in and the world is going to watch the way that you interact with each other you as a nuclear family us as a communal family us as a church family they're going to look at at us and they're going to say do I want to be a part of what it is that they have to offer because a lot of times I would say most of the time that our faith becomes our own or our faith becomes uh, becomes real to us from the outside comes as a result of seeing relationships of seeing the way that families interact with each other. And by virtue of this hole, this hurt, this absence that we have in our own family, we see that the promises of God are good and they're true. And we want that. And so as this family is on display, God puts them out there. He doesn't bring their sin back up, but he brings all of them in. And those families, as they're walking together into Egypt, I mean, you have Judah bringing his family in to go meet uh, Joseph and his family. You have Simeon and Levi bringing their families in. You have Dinah and her family. You have these people that have real reasons to be angry at each other, to hurt with each other, that are walking in together in whatever, to whatever degree that reconciliation took place, and the world is looking from the outside in, and they're seeing this. But even more than the world, Israel, who is in the Exodus, who is wandering in the wilderness, is looking back and they are seeing this hope. This hope that if they can get along, we can too. And so our brokenness doesn't need to keep us from putting our family on display because of this hope. So let's talk about that. And we're going to move in, we're going to go back up into chapter 46, beginning in verse 31. We are going to see this story of Joseph very, or excuse me, of Jesus very clearly as the better Joseph. Look at what happens here and think, think, think. 
about the headship of God. Think about the nature of Christ. Think about the reality of your salvation as we read this. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Listen to this. Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and their herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as their fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there's no pasture for our servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men from among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Let's jump down to verse 11 in chapter 47. Then Joseph settled his fathers and brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Wow. I mean, this, I don't know if you caught this. It took me a couple of readings to get there as well. This thing almost went off the rails real fast. <laughs> because Joseph brought in his father. He's excited about it. And as he brings them into a relationship, he's got this huge problem. He is an Egyptian now, and he's going to have to choose between one or the other. He can't be his father's son in front of Pharaoh. And he can't be Pharaoh's second in command and still be in relationship with his father unless Pharaoh gives him his blessing. Because, well, let's take a look. Joseph explains to his brothers what life in Egypt will mean for them. What it, what it means, this is, a, you're in a different place now. There are different rules. This is not Canaan anymore. You're coming in to, to Egypt and we're gonna do things a different way. And in verse 34 in chapter 46, he declares them to be an abomination to the Egyptians. You and I are an abomination to a holy God. Our sin, our pride, our rebellion causes God to look at us and want to exact wrath. He wants to punish sin. Because he is holy, he cannot be in the presence of sin. And it's only because we have a good older brother who has gone before us, who is seated number two next to the king of the universe, that you and I are not destroyed for our sin. And so Joseph declares to his brothers, he calls them what they are. He tells them how this world is going to be and what he's going to do to save them. So does Jesus. This story here, this, this collection of stories, this library that we carry around is tale after tale of the way that Jesus has provided salvation for every single different person in the world. We're all saved by the blood of Christ. We're all saved from different things. And so Jesus explains it to, or excuse me, Joseph explains it to them. But not only does he explain it to them, but 
he, he goes before the king and declares to his king exactly who these people are. They are shepherds. And Pharaoh hears, ooh, they are an abomination. And they may have gotten cleaned up, and by cleaned up means they put water on themselves and rinsed off the dust, but they still stinketh, and they're still hairy, and they're still shepherds. And they're still walking into the house of Pharaoh with their weird clothes, with that sheep smell that you can't get off you. And they're saying, we know the whole world is starving. Treat us differently. Give us the very best of the land. They have to go in before Pharaoh and declare who they are. You cannot be saved unless you declare that you are a sinner. And this is one of the challenges in our culture today is we want people to to come in, but we want to make them feel good about it. And God does not give us the room to do that. We have to declare ourselves to be sinners in need of grace and begging for the mercy of God. Because as soon as they walk in, Pharaoh could be thinking to himself, this is a pretty good idea. Joseph's really hooked me up. Hey, everybody's doing okay. But he could look at them and he could say, you know what? We're already two and a half years into this famine. There's only four and a half left. We've got a pretty good system going. I bet there's at least five people that put together are almost as smart as Joseph. Back to the dungeon with you and execute all these stinky shepherds along the way. It is plausible to think that this would not have worked out. This was a huge risk for Joseph. Remember, he'd already been falsely accused and tossed into prison. He'd already been forgotten after after he had helped the the baker and the, uh, the, the taster, cupbearer. Joseph had already been cast into a pit and sold into slavery by his brother. So why couldn't something else bad happen again? And so Joseph takes a risk and he allies himself. He declares himself to be one with these these abominations. And he sides with his family. And he goes before the king and he says, we are here, bless us. And Jesus does the same thing for you. He who knew no sin became sin on your behalf. Every sin that you have committed, every perverse, disgusting thing about who you are, every time you've lost your temper and said something, hit something, thrown something, done something to someone, every gross thought in your mind about someone of the opposite sex or the same sex, every time that you have lied and cheated and stolen in secret when no one has found out, every time that you have taken a shortcut, every time that you have denied Jesus, every time that you have done something that you know you're not supposed to do, Jesus knows that. And he died on the cross for that sin. And not only for those sins, but for the ones that are to come. This holiday season when you just can't stand listening to that black sheep of the family lie for the umpteenth time and pretend like everything's okay and you're good, gracious family members who either are too ignorant or just aren't as smart as you to figure all this out or just listening to all that stuff, Jesus died for that sin. And wants to give you the grace and peace in your heart to be able to confidently know that God will deal with that person. And that God is dealing with that person. Whether they're storing up for themselves wrath that will be to the day to come. Or whether he has got grace just right around the corner. God is concerned with them. And he's not only concerned with them, he's concerned with you. He doesn't want you to be made a fool. And that's why Jesus was. He doesn't want you to be, be fighting for your own rights. That's why Jesus did. He doesn't want you to spend your time doing anything other than being thankful and grateful for who God is. And that's why he has done all the hard work ahead of you. 
And so Joseph comes in. He's the one that suffers. He's the one that learns Egypt's ways. He's the one that sets everything up. He's the one that saves the world. And he's the one then that brings his family in and goes and is with them and provides for them. And so as we look at this, the challenge we have is how will you respond to this invitation to become a part of God's family? And how will you respond to the invitation to remain a part of God's family? As we look around and we see Christians fail, as we see churches struggle, as we see people lie about things, as we see people let others walk off into hell, as we see people that just don't know how to be Christian, how will we respond to them? As brothers and sisters in Christ, with a good older brother who's advocating for us and a father who loves them and us. How will we love them? How will we create space for the spirit to work in them? How will we show them that, that our dad loves them? And what does it mean for those who aren't yet? How will you invite into the family of God people that don't know what it means to be loved, to be pure, to be chosen by Jesus? And how will we create an environment where they, where they will actually want to be here? invite the music team back up. I'm going to pray for us as we consider this. Father God, we thank you that you are a good, good father and that you have given us a good, good son in Jesus Christ, your good, good son. God, I pray that as we are struggling with trying to figure out what it means to be good sons and good daughters in this world, good brothers and good sisters in this church, that we would do so knowing that getting it wrong means we get to confess Christ saves, and getting it right means we get to confess that Christ lives. And that in either case, you have come to give us life and life abundant. So I pray for us who are hearing this message today that you would remind us that we are secure in the family of God, and we have the privilege of forgiving, restoring, and reconciling. No matter how hard it is that you have gone before us, so that more will come, so that more will believe, so that your glory will be shown, so that you will be worshiped fully and greatly. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm just gonna say Nigel, that. thank you. I took my seat back there. I'm encouraged that this, um, this reminder that it's, it's, it's not hiding um, and pretending uh, that, I, that now I'm super great, that's going to help people come find Jesus. Uh, like um, you had for us this morning in First John, and he says, if, if, you, if you proclaim that you have fellowship with God, but you don't walk in the light, the truth's not there. And I'm reminded that, uh, what does that mean for me with my neighbors or friends of my son or... Um, people I'm going to see at school or even us here together uh, that, that I, can, I can do like Paul says and boast in the cross and, instead of myself and say no I'm not, I'm not perfect there's actually a lot that you don't see and walking the light means revealing all that I, I, am, I think for some of us this morning there's probably uh, God has for us to think about what does that mean that whole headship thing if us as heads of families does that, is there a way that he wants to use us in that role toward our neighbors so they can see that kind of peculiar, what has God given us to live out? Um, and then also at the same time, probably a lot of us in here who just this morning need to understand or wrestle with, am I even able to confess that I need God? Um, 
am I even able to say? I have all this stuff in the darkness that I want to come out into the light and, and just say, I am not good enough for God. And that's, so that's what we're going to do right now, this, this, um, this communion. Yeah, come on in, guys. So we get to continue worshiping now as a whole family. And, and I think it's powerful that our kids see us responding, that they see us worshiping, that, that we get to talk to them about communion. That's funny, like every family's on that side of the room. Um, I'm going to read this here from Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to keep singing, and you can join in with us. At the same time, we have our youth um, and, le- and youth leaders are going to come and, and serve us communion. So you can stay where you are. Communion is going to be served out. Um, after you have the elements in your hands, you can feel free at that point. As God leads to take communion with your family or with your spouse or with a, a neighbor next to you, um, this is a, a chance once it's being been passed out to you, let yourself be served by our youth, and then, and then follow the Holy Spirit's leading. How, how you, if you have little ones, if they're ready, if they can say, I had stuff in the darkness, I need Jesus, I'm not good enough to, to stand before God. I need his cross. So there's bread to remind us of his body, there's juice to remind us of his blood, and we're going to worship now. Let me pray for us. Thanks, Jesus that you really died, you really suffered, you really rose again. You became sin to take our sin from us. And this time now, as we remember and we declare that out loud with each other, meet us please. If there's someone here who doesn't know you, who hasn't been made a new creation, do that now in our hearts, in our, in our midst. Be with us and thank you for your cross, for your blood, for what you've done to win us from our own uh, evilness. Amen, Jesus.